Let's uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Numbers 15. Numbers chapter 15. Numbers 15, we're going to look at two verses there, um, verses 15 and then verse, uh, verses 15 and 16. I'm going to read 14 to give some context, but Numbers chapter 15. Fifteen and sixteen, just to give you sort of like you had the spies who came in and most of them gave a false report, and then you had the two faithful faithful spies who gave the report that they should have done. Um, of course, there was people who the Israelites rebelled, and then there was some tension and whatnot. But we're coming up on God's law given to them. So Numbers fifteen, verse fifteen. These are the words of God. Excuse me, verse fourteen. If, any, if an alien sojourns with you, or one who may be among you throughout your generations, and he wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so he shall do. As for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the alien who sojourns with you, a perpetual statute throughout your generations, as you are so shall the alien be before the Lord. There is to be one law and one ordinance for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we are thankful to have your word, um, but we also realize that, this, uh, that with this comes, that with this blessing comes tremendous responsibility. By and large, we have as a church and as a nation forsaken your covenant word, and because of it, we are in much turmoil. We recognize that in large part, we are guilty for how we have treated the foreigner. Our nation is stained with racism, and it continues today. We repent, therefore, for our complicity in all of that. We ask that your spirit would bring repentance to the church nationwide so that we can be faithful to your covenant. So we ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. So we're continuing our series, The Politics of Humanism, and I must say, God does have a tremendous amount of humor. Um, Two months ago, note that, two months ago, when I laid out my plan for this series, I didn't think that when the moment came to preach this particular message that I would have to do it during a time when the world is watching thousands of Central American immigrants head towards America. In fact, um, when I first heard about this caravan, the caravan as they're calling it, um, what was it, a week or two ago, whenever it was, I laughed because I knew that this Sunday was coming. So the irony obviously couldn't be more palpable. Before we dig into the history, though, of immigration in America, because I do want to examine that, I think it's important, and then we'll look at what the Bible actually says about it and some themes therein, I want to make sure that we sort of up front just clear the air, as it were, with anything a detractor might drum up against us. Um, It is not an overstatement to declare that the church, by and large, has refused to teach on the topic. Um, You can go to sermon audio like I did, and you can do a quick search, 
and search for immigration, and you'll find a few messages. Most of them were like radio broadcasts, though. And then after I did that search, I thought, well, let me just do a search on justification by faith. And lo and behold, there were thousands of sermons. Um, so clearly the, ter- the church really isn't teaching the whole counsel of God like she thinks she is. So part of the reason for this is because the modern Christian does not believe, the modern Christian does not believe that political theory is anything that we should fuss about um, because of some of the escapist errors and some of the advocates of the radical two kingdom folks, they Christians by and large are barred from dealing with these issues because they aren't quote spiritual enough. They're not spiritual topics. This is of course this radical Gnosticism. I think it needs to be rejected wholesale. The Bible, because the Bible does speak of the whole of life, and we must abide by it, and we must be able to do the hard work of learning from the Bible and actually implementing what, is, what it teaches, whether or not we, we're comfortable or not. So by way of a simple preface, we reject altogether the notion that these topics are somehow off limits because the Christian faith is a comprehensive faith, one that touches on every facet of life, especially politics. Besides, immigration has only become a political issue because we've let it become a political issue. The free movement of free individuals is meant to be free. So when the state touches it, just like everything else, are we surprised that it becomes suddenly a political issue? This is all because we hate liberty most part, for the most part, and we prefer statism, as we'll see in a bit. Now, before we dig into the passage, I want to walk you through a quick history of the immigration laws in the United States, and then you can see how far we have strayed. So keep in mind, though, that in the U.S., the United States Constitution, you can read it in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 4. It says that Congress has the power, quote, to establish a uniform rule of naturalization. Don't miss this, all right, because uh, this deals into political theory. It, the, the point of the Constitution is to restrain the government, not restrain individuals. So you can have that argument all day. But don't miss this, that Congress itself has granted the power to determine the process of how one becomes an American citizen. And that's it. So it has nothing to do with free individuals visiting, spending money, tourists working, people working, crossing the border freely into the country. So know that up front. Know that up front. That's just what the Constitution says. Now, here's a brief history. On March 26, 1790, the Naturalization Act was passed. In short, this law limited the naturalization process, the process of citizenship, to free white persons who had good character. Okay, in order to know who had good character, you had to watch them. So they had to be in the country for two years, and you also had to be in the state you resided in for one year. Now, note this. This law totally excluded American Native Americans, American Indians, black slaves, and even free blacks. So some states, though, did allow for free blacks to become citizens. Also in the law contained therein was the citizenship given to children who were born two U.S. citizens, though they were born maybe abroad or overseas. So that's 1790. 
okay, not long after the Declaration of Independence. This act was repealed in 1795, and then the one in 1795 was later repealed in 1798, and even that one only lasted four years because it was repealed in 1802. Now, those laws, those repeals, were basically centered on the time frame question. How long does a person have to be in America before they become a citizen? The one in 1798 took it to 14 years. 1819 was the first significant federal legislation on immigration. The Steerage Act of 1819 established both the reporting of immigration to the U.S. as well as basically outlined the rules and regulations for ports and ships and even passengers who are on those ships. On July 4th, 1864, President Abraham Lincoln signed an act to encourage immigration, which was, in fact, the first of its kind in America. Yes, indeed it was, but it was also Congress's first policy granting them centralized control over immigration. This was huge for the history of the, of the country. If there, were, if there was ever a door that opened up to the machine of centralized planning and governance, this was, this was it from the pen of Lincoln himself. The Senate gave, they passed a law, the President Lincoln, he signed it. The Senate gave the President power. He granted the, they granted the President power to appoint a commissioner of immigration, the first in history, who was the subject, he was subject then to the Department of the State. Now this person could hold office for four years, and the act even outlined how much this person would make per year. Are you ready? $2,500 per year. This was a major step forward in giving the United States government power that the, the Constitution simply did not permit them to have. And now as a side note, that act signed by Lincoln, interestingly enough, also gave us our first office of immigration, um, the United States Emigrant Office, which was sanctioned to be in New York City. That was done under Lincoln's watch. In 1875, there was a direct federal um, regulation of immigration which prohibited the entry of prostitutes and convicts because now we gotta, you know, we got to watch out for them. Another major leap forward with regard to the government's control over immigration was the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was signed into law by President Chester Arthur on May 6, 1882. This prohibited all immigration of Chinese laborers. This was, without a doubt a racist attempt at nationalism. We will come back to that. In 1891, the Bureau of Immigration was established as the central planning group and organization over the issue of immigration, 1891. The Immigration Act of 1903 was the next law regulating immigration. Then this one banned anarchists, it banned people with epilepsy, it banned beggars and importers of prostitutes. I mean, we're getting really down to it, aren't we? The Naturalization Act of 1906, just three years later, was passed in Congress and signed into law by Theodore Roosevelt. And this required immigrants to learn English in order to become American citizens. This was um, later repealed and replaced in 1940, and then it was modified again in 1990, so not long ago. A few more things, because I'm building my case here. <laughs> In 1917, we had laws and restrictions about people with medical and moral conditions, illiterates, 
imbeciles. This is no joke. This is written in law. Imbeciles. I don't know. What standard are we using on that one? You seem like an imbecile. You're not allowed. Um, And alcoholics. So if you were an Irish guy who liked to drink, which sort of goes hand in hand, you're not allowed to come. Um, This law in 1917 also put a head tax of $8 on every immigrant. The 1920s gave us the quota system, whereby it was regulated how many of a certain people of uh, people groups could enter, how many from, from this country, how many from that country would we allow in. It also gave us in 1970, excuse me, 1920 in the 1920s, how many people could be in certain counties as well. So when you think of government regulation, like we're talking all of it, how many people from uh, Korea could be in Fauquier County? That was regulated. In 1948, we had the first U.S. policy for admitting people fleeing persecution. Um, You should know that we had a direct hand in refusing Jews who were escaping in the 1940s, the Holocaust, and we sent them back to the gas chambers because of our laws. Um, In 1948, we limited 205,000 refugees over two years. It was later increased to 415,000. Two years later, in 1950, we we decided to do something. We rejected communists. Communists were excluded and subversives were deported. 1952, the Immigration and Nationality Act was a sweeping change of law that basically brought everything into one comprehensive law. It reaffirmed the quota system, how many from where we can pull in here. It was based on nationality, it was based on origin. It limited, it limited the Eastern Hemisphere, of course it opened up the Western Hemisphere, and basically this law established a preference for skilled workers and relatives of U.S. citizens, and it also tightened security standards. You see how this is like a snowball? We're, we're not done yet. The Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, promoted by Ted Kennedy, signed into law by Lyndon Johnson, which was on October 3rd, it abolished the quota system, but it still restricted the number of immigrants allowed in the country, and thus it restricted naturalization. Um, it still restricted sexual deviance, spelled out even for homosexuals, The law opened up the door for more allowance of Asians and more allowance of Africans. In the 70s and the 80s, 1970s, 1980s, there was a change in refugee standards, and the next big law came in 1986 with the Immigration Reform and Control Act. Some of you know this was signed into law by Ronald Reagan, and this act required employers to declare the immigration status of their employees It made it illegal to hire immigrants knowingly, and it legalized seasonal agricultural workers, it legalized undocumented immigrants who entered before January 1st, 1982. Clearly a law of amnesty. This amnesty required the immigrants to prove that they had knowledge about U.S. history, they had knowledge about the United States government, and they were capable of speaking English the English language. Can you imagine having to prove your historical knowledge to a bureaucrat from D.C.? You probably know more than he does. Chances are. On September 30th, 1996, we're getting closer, Bill Clinton signed into law the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act. 
though dealing in large part with um, deportation standards, the law also gave authority to the attorney general to do what? To construct barriers along the U.S.-Mexico border. Since then, we've had several laws regarding amnesty and immigration from certain parts of the world. You will recall, most of you in this room, not the kids, but pretty much all the adults in the room will recall the Homeland Security Act of 2002, which created out of thin air the Department of Homeland Security, which took over all immigration enforcement. Thank you, George Bush. Bush. There have been various um, visa reform acts, very, lots of laws. You, you probably know of the Real ID Act of 2005, which dealt with identification standards of individuals. Your papers, please, right? That, that whole thing. Another big one was the Secure Fence Act of 2006. George Bush wasn't done in 2002. He had more to accomplish. So the Secure Fence Act was passed in 2006. Basically, along the southern border, U.S.-Mexico border, it authorized more vehicle checkpoints. It authorized more, more um, things like lighting, um, more government agents there supervising things to prevent people from, quote, entering our country illegally. That's in the law. So that's just a nutshell. And I wanted you to see that I did a lot of reading this week. <laughs> I, want, yeah, I wanted you to see all of the snowball effect of immigration law in America, how it started, and now where we are at today. So you should have noticed, I think it's quite obvious, that over time, this centralized statist planning took over in the U.S. government, and it was given more and more and more and more control. Not only is this entirely unconstitutional, it's completely immoral. In fact, Many of these laws stem from socialist ideologies and racist ideologies as well. Many of the leaders um, who helped shape these, who, they weren't even politicians, but scholars and all, all these humanist scholars in these schools, many of them believed in, in white supremacy. They believed that whites were the superior race, and they taught these racist ideologies, and they impacted our politicians. So this nationalistic fervor of our nation, I think it's grown un unhelpfully, but it's grown, it's increased tremendously, and judging by the reaction of modern conservatives today, who are simply yesterday's liberals, the vehemence over the current situation of the caravan, I believe, is a damning indictment on just how far we have fallen away from biblical law. The, the most wicked thing that I've seen are people calling for military force when they step foot onto U.S. soil, taking guns and shooting innocent people. It's wickedness. And anybody who names the name of Christ who's had those thoughts needs to repent for it. It's vile. It's completely antithetical to the gospel. Completely. So to the Bible we have to go. So it goes without saying, since we are Christians, that we believe in the entirety of the Bible. I'm going to be discussing a lot of different things, mostly from the Old Testament, but that doesn't mean they're irrelevant or wrong. And I also understand, no one needs to say this to me afterwards, I, not that any of you would, but I, I understand that we are not a nation right now in a position where we are that concerned about obeying God and His covenant law. So I know that. I know we are... I know our president, I know, uh, I mean, we have um, abortion on demand. 
So I know we don't care as a nation about God's word. I know that. But just because we have forsaken Christ the King doesn't mean that we then embrace status law, right? You don't get out of sin by walking away from the solution. You don't fix the problems by saying, well, we're going to appeal to something other than Scripture and insist on something else. So you've probably seen those arguments. They're all over social media these days. Oh, you're just advocating biblical law. Don't you know that we don't really buy into that? Right, I realize that, but we should. (laughs) So don't tell me that. I know that. You know that. And part of our preaching is the law of God. We sang this song, his, his, his law is love, his gospel is peace. We need both of them. And we need to think clearly about the issue. So, so just because the nation re- now, right now rejects God's standards doesn't mean we abandon it and try to go another direction. So to the teaching and the testimony, we must go. In Numbers 15, you have your Bible open. God lays out some basic ideas and principles regarding biblical law and the issue of immigration. Immigration meaning um, people leaving, they're immigrants, right? Leaving and going to another place where there are political boundaries, if you will. Look at verse 14 again. If an alien sojourns with you or one who may be among you throughout your generations and he wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so he shall do. As for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the alien who sojourns with you, a perpetual statute throughout your generations. As you are, note that, as you are, so shall the alien be before the Lord. These are not tears of humanity. So as you are, so is the alien. All right? Verse 16, there is to be one law and one ordinance for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. It is assumed that aliens, foreigners, and strangers will be among Israel. It's assumed. They're going to be there. God's law never says, get, get, get the Humvees out there and stop anybody from Arabia, anybody from Egypt, anybody who's coming in, don't let them in. And throw away the, 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 the walls argument, the walls of Jerusalem, okay? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. The walls, the city walls were there, yes, to prevent, prevent attack, but where were the people living? Some in the city, but some outside the city. So that, that's just a fallacy, and anybody who argues that is... A little bit on the on the lost side of things. A lot on the lost side of things. So it's assumed they're going to be there. And what's assumed in God's law is that not only are, are aliens and strangers and foreigners going to be with you, it's also assumed that they are to be treated a certain way. They're not to be ignored. They're not to be scorned. They're to be treated a certain way. And the way that they were to be treated was built on love. And since love is the fulfillment of the law... Right? Thus, you know, true love is thus a lawful love. We are treating people lawfully. There was to be one statute, the law of God, for Israel and for the alien who sojourns among the Israelites. It was to be a perpetual and ongoing statute throughout your generations, the text says. And at the end of verse 15, it says, As you are, so shall the alien be before the Lord. So please notice this up front. 
There is one law for Israel and for the alien. According to God's standards, God's holy standard, God's law, the only way, listen, don't miss this, the only way to differentiate between people is the terms and conditions of the covenant, not race, not nationality, not country. According to God's standards, the only way of differentiating between people is the covenant itself. There was a never a point in time when Israel was defined exclusively by bloodline. That's a huge problem in some circles. That's why we have all the, this prophecy obsession going on. The, in the Old Testament, it was not of just simply about blood. Because God is the creator of all people, it follows then that all people are accountable to his holy law word. Everyone's going to be judged according to God's standard. Everyone will face judgment day. And God's not going to use one standard for the heathen and another standard for his elect. It's just not going to happen. So which means that there is only one law, there's only one law, and all people are defined in terms of this covenant. So listen, the law of God determines who is a covenant member not race, and not blood. If you adopt pagan thinking, which teaches that people are to be differentiated by bloodline, by race, by ethnicity, by nationality, if that is what you think, you have adopted pagan thinking. See, this is why you could have someone like Ruth, the Moabite, be a covenant member. And why you could have someone like Esau, the son of Jacob, excuse me, Isaac, Jacob was the covenant member, Esau was what? Not. He was rejected. But, but he's blood. He's family. He's from the loins of Abraham. If anybody's in, it's his grandson, Esau. No, that's not the case. It's covenant. It's covenant. See, citizenship in Israel was always a moral thing. It was always based. It was always uh, uh, on a moral basis. It was never racial. It was never nationalistic. It was always covenantal. Non-biblical law will inevitably place race and ethnicity and nationality above morality and biblical faith. Always. See, God's law is ethical. Man's law is immoral. The historical motivators that put immigration laws into place was because of socialistic, racist views of man. Bottom line. This, this collective superiority is what is actually destroying our country. And modern conservatives are the ones that are embracing the nonsense. Can you be patriotic? Yes. I love this country. Should you be nationalistic? No way. You're sinning because now you are elevating something above the kingdom of God. See, all of this stems from two very important points, and these two points are are points that will never be talked about on Fox News or CNN. You'll never hear this conversation. Maybe someday I'll get to do that. And these two points are not only never going to be talked about, but it doesn't matter if you're talking to a Republican or a Democrat, these things go out the window immediately and we start arguing on faulty ground. Okay, here's the first point. It's the principle of ownership. 
The principle of ownership. Very simple. From cover to cover, from front to back, the Bible is clear. God is the creator, and he holds the deed to the earth. It's his, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything, is contain- everything contained in there, including people, belong to God. Leviticus 25, 23 reads this. He says, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Don't miss this. Here, God makes it clear that the land belongs to him, and any human being who walks on this land is a sojourner. God owns it. We are called to be covenantal stewards of it. And, and don't think, well, that was just for Israel back then. That doesn't apply. No, no, it does. It applies to America now. God's covenant hasn't changed in how he feels about land and how he feels about people. See, not only have we in America forgotten that our ancestors were immigrants, we have forgotten that we are too. We are. According to Leviticus 25, 23, everyone in Israel who lived in Israel, whether or not they were blood of, of Abraham or covenant members, they were actually sojourners too. Even though they walked into the land, even though Joshua brought them in and they conquered it bit by bit, they were still aliens to the land. Why? Because it's God's. The earth is the Lord's. See, biblical law should be our controlling principle, not political propaganda. Biblical law should be our controlling principle, not political propaganda. I don't care if it's Anderson Cooper or Sean Hannity. It doesn't matter. The Bible is our controlling principle. And far too many Christians have attached themselves to the teat of the Republican Party. And because of it, they can't see the issue clearly. They throw out this principle of God's ownership. They throw it out the window and they begin to argue in socialist collectivist terms. You've heard this. These immigrants are coming and they're going to take our jobs. I know for a fact you can go and start out over 100000 a year down in Houston working with oil companies. There is a shortage of labor there. But they're taking our jobs. Our. Our collective jobs. Because we all own those jobs. You see that? Or, or you hear things like, this is our country. They need to come here legally, not illegally. It's our country. Forget the fact that these are image bearers fleeing from the oppression that our nation created anyway. All that matters is our nation. It's ours. It belongs to the collective. See, ownership then... It's removed from God. This is the core, one of the core issues in the immigration debate. Ownership is removed from God. It's taken from God. And it's given to this elusive collective that no one can really point to anyone. Where It's our, it's our nation. Who's the our? Oh, the superior ones. The ones who are perfect and righteous. See, ownership is this collective, and instead of biblical law, we give ourselves over to socialism and racism, and that's simply the history of the nation. This isn't me making up stuff. This is, these are facts. All of these, this 
snowball effect in our nation of this history has been nothing but one socialistic idea after another, one after the, after the other. See, because we reject this principle of God's ownership and the priority of God over the earth, we create this immigration issue out of thin air. Borders in the Bible were always uh, limiting to governments, not individuals. It was always a principle of keeping governments. That's what the boundaries were. It wasn't to protect you know, in, who can come in and who can't come in and those types of things. Individuals can work and they can visit. They can vacation freely. Governments cannot. See, the Bible never gives the civil magistrate the authority to control where and when people go to this place or that place. Their job is to uphold God's law and punish evildoers. Non-criminals, non-criminal individuals, they are free under the authority of God's law. And they are free to travel and to do work as they please. And real quick, I want to address this fallacy that you hear all the time too. We'll call it the fallacy of the locked front door. Because you've heard it a lot, right? Well, you lock your doors at night. We need to lock this nation at night. You've heard that. See, the property that you own, which, let's face it, you don't actually own. You're paying rent to the government. Can we just acknowledge the property tax problem? That's a different issue. But the property that you own, own, is yours by God's delegation. It's God's delegation. It's given to families. It's given to individuals. So yes, you can lock your door and, and shoot anyone who breaks in at night and be righteous in God's sight. But the land that America occupies is not owned by the collective. So no, you may not lock it. Again, who is the owner? Once you answer the question of ownership, this issue goes away. It's not even an issue. And and that's the question that nobody really wants to talk about. The land is not the front yard of the government, and the border is not its front door. It's God's land. And anything that you own as an individual under him is delegated. See, ownership is the first principle that is rejected in this discussion. The second thing that we don't talk about is the issue of citizenship, or what we'll call covenant membership. Because we are a nation that had some Christian influence early on, we are now reaping what we have sown. Instead of covenanting with God and the Lord Jesus Christ and abiding by his law, we have developed a nation that rejects God's covenant and has instead embraced nationalism and pluralism and statism. Remember, citizenship in Israel was always a moral thing. It was a moral thing. It was always on a moral basis. It was never racial. It was never nationalistic. It was never bloodlines. It was never that. It was always covenantal. Non-biblical thinking and non-biblical law always places race and nationalism and ethnicity above morality, above biblical faith. See, the problem that conservatives refuse, I'm picking on conservatives tonight because they deserve it. Those who are so far gone into liberal land, we know that they got problems. But let's not forget, like, ostensible conservatives have major problems too. The problem that conservatives refuse to acknowledge, and, and it makes sense why they refuse it, is the issue of citizenship. Think about it. 
citizenship in Israel, it, must, it was covenantal. So it must be covenantal in terms of God, not the state. So in, in Israel, we had, we had a couple of things going on. Well, first, you had the sojourner who was a naturalized citizen, right? Someone living in the land who was in covenant with God, someone who could partake of the Passover meal. They were circumcised, and they adopted the faith of Israel. Think of Abraham's entire entourage, most of which whom were not, quote-unquote, Jewish. Was Abraham Jewish? <laughs> well, that begs the question, what's, what does it mean to be Jewish? Like, that's a whole different thing. But Abraham was a pagan. God called him out, right? And he had an army. He did, you know, Lot was kidnapped, and he went and defeated the kings and got his nephew back. He had an entourage, and they were all members of the covenant. They were circumcised members, including the servant who went to uh, his father's household to find a wife for his, for his son Isaac. So citizenship was always an issue of covenant, covenantal um, thinking. The sojourner was someone who became a member of the covenant. Now, there were also foreigners. So there's two different Hebrew words at play here. There were foreigners. They were someone who, who lived in the land, but they were not in covenant with God. They, too, were to abide by God's law, and any attempt at subversion would be squashed because, again, there is one law for everyone. And I submit to you that the immigrant issue cannot be resolved it cannot be resolved without understanding the covenant. See, the reality is, though the Constitution gives permission for the government to regulate the process of naturalization, the reality is it was only a matter of time before this spun out of control. It was only a matter of time before more government regulation came. This is because citizenship is supposed to be covenantal, not nationalistic. The term illegal immigrant, for example, is a fictional fiat term that's derived from unbiblical categories. See, the, again, the only grounds for differentiation between individuals was God and his law. It was not race, it was not ethnicity, and it was not nationality. So citizenship is an ethical issue. It's not a national issue. That's the problem which is why we have to have an ethical judicial that is covenantal understanding of immigration. Instead of the talking points of liberals and conservatives, the church needs to be mature enough to discuss these issues on these terms. A few more things to consider. And I wish I could say more. I had a hard time deciding what not to say because there's so much to say. God's law forbade Israel from mistreating the alien and the foreigner. Exodus 22, 21, 23, 9, Leviticus 19, 33, uh, Deuteronomy, several passages, Deuteronomy 1, 16, 10, 18, 23, 7, 24, 14, Malachi even has a verse in chapter 3, verse 5. God's law repeats over and over that the, the law was intended to protect the alien, but it was also intended to protect the covenant land. Covenant land in Israel could not be alienated because the law of God was and is fixed. Look at all these laws in our nation. We just keep piling up on them. Hundreds of thousands. Any day you are committing a felony. And you don't even know it. Law after law after law. And of course, we, you know, God's law is so heavy and burdensome. No, man's law is. 
See, covenant curses from Deuteronomy 28, they would confound Israel if they disobeyed. God would curse their land. And, and, and Israel and the land, the land would vomit them out, just like the Canaanites were vomited out. See, covenant is never just about ritual and activity. It's also about location. God's purpose in man taking dominion over the earth is tied to the actual earth. Funny that how that is. See, we think we can divorce God from all these matters of life, and we like to detach God's ownership of the earth and declare ourselves to be the owner. Like, can we please stop and reflect on the fact that there, like, people lived here before Columbus came? Can we acknowledge that? And so we reject all the, we detach God's ownership, and then we're surprised that God is removing the control of the land from his dominion agents, namely the church. We're surprised that the church, by and large, has been lost in the shuffle. Could it be because we have hated our neighbor? The job of the covenant man is to take care of the stranger. Over and over and over. The job of the covenant man is to take care of the stranger. Could the problems we face today be because we have forsaken this responsibility? Because we have treated or berated our neighbor instead of befriending him. The church's primary combatant is not the world, it's the Holy Spirit. That's who we're up against. We're up against the God who lives in us. And why? Because we have neglected justice altogether. We have failed to take care of the stranger. And because of it, God the Holy Spirit has brought sanctions against us using the very law that we are told to obey. And if we are going to disciple nations, you better believe that we're going to have to deal with political theory. We're just going to have to do it. If we're going to disciple nations in a manner that God says we should, then our political theory better be based on what God has said in his law word. And we have to stop making the same mistakes and repeating the same sins that Israel had done over and over, generation and after generation. God told Israel to remember, such were some of you. Such were some of you. And God also said this, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. This is covenant. This is ownership. Such were some of you. You were an alien. You were a stranger at one point. And you are not your own. You were bought by Christ. And your job is to serve him, not the state. See, covenant people are people who serve others. Who serve others, not send the National Guard in there to open fire the minute this caravan crosses the border. Covenant people are people who treat others the way you want to be treated. It's amazing. The golden rule. Like we, we, we jam it down our children's throats for day after day, but we don't even do it. We don't love our neighbors. We don't treat people the way we want to be treated. Pagan slave societies were absolutely wicked and barbaric and brutal. Do you remember Israel and Egypt? The oppression. And there's a reason that many people, once Israel had the land, there's a reason many people left and came to Israel because in Deuteronomy 4, the law was to be wisdom in the sight of the nations. See, we are called to welcome the stranger and serve the widow and orphan, not come up with a thousand excuses of why we shouldn't. That's our calling. 
That's the church's calling, to serve the widow, to welcome the stranger, to serve the orphan, not sit here and come up with a thousand reasons why we shouldn't do it. And this is the basic ethic of the covenant. Until the church here in America recovers this ethic, we are going to see ourselves in a lot of trouble, more so than what we already have going on. I'm close to being done. The church has embraced the politics of humanism without a doubt. Many evangelicals are functional Marxists. Marxism himself was not in favor of open borders. Marx was not in favor of immigration because it never helped his agenda. How could it possibly do, do that when you have new, fresh minds, young laborers, entrepreneurial people with vision coming into a country they perceive to be very free and open for opportunity? How are they going to benefit an economy, right? How, how could they benefit Marx's agenda? Well, that's what people say today. They're taking our jobs. What can they do? Let me tell you. Do some research. Go, go to um, Fee's website. And you can see just the economic impact of immigration. It grows economies. It doesn't stagnate them. It grows them, creates jobs, and thus the central government loses jobs. See, the church has, by and large, been okay with cradle-to-grave security. And the reason conservative Christians want closed borders is because, whether they admit it or not, they want more government control. That's what they want. That's what everybody wants. Why? Because they don't trust God. How are a few thousand immigrants coming from Central America suddenly this nationalistic threat? We better get our nukes ready. It's ridiculous. And for whatever reason, on top of that, like conservatives still don't understand that in history, it's, it's always been the socialists and the communists who built walls. It's like we forgot about 1989. And people say, well, you don't believe in the letter of the law, the law of the land, do you? No, I don't believe in the law of land. Not when it lacks Holy Spirit infusion. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is not present, there is slavery. Friends, we have a lot of repenting to do. The gospel of Jesus Christ demands that we love our neighbor and treat the stranger in a manner consistent with how Christ has treated us. You are not your own, and such were some of you. And if we can't this, get this basic requirement of the gospel right, God will visit us in judgment as he is doing. And let me tell you, it will not be unjust. It will not be unjust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we have adopted humanism in the church instead of biblical law and biblical faith. We have sought to fix problems in a manner completely and entirely inconsistent with your prescribed solutions. Instead of trusting you and believing your word, we've created our own word and sought to live by it. It is quite obvious to us here that you are bringing your sanctions against us. We are still dealing with the after effects of the slave trade and racism that followed it. We are still a blood-soaked nation that hates the family and hates the preborn. We are also a nation that hates the foreigner, and not just because we want communist walls, but because we refuse to believe that we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Instead of doing this, Father, we've demanded more central planning and thus more oppression. Our nation is wicked, God, and it deserves the judgment you are bringing against it. And my prayer is that the church would repent and turn back to your law word and then begin to infiltrate our nation with this gospel, this covenant. 
We desire to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. And immigration is no different. Would you grant us repentance and grant us faith? In Christ's name I pray, amen.